Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Alert, brought to you by the Institute of Alcohol Studies. On this month's podcast, we spoke to Dr. Arla Jawad about a new joint report from the Alcohol Health Alliance, Obesity Health Alliance, and Action on Smoking and Health. We also spoke to Susan Taylor from Balance Northeast about their new hard-hitting alcohol and cancer campaign. First, here's Arla explaining what the joint cross-risk factor report set out to find. So this report aimed to really identify the key barriers that are preventing us from improving the health of our nation generally, from the harm specifically caused by tobacco, alcohol and unhealthy food and drink products, um, primarily because these three products are the major causes of death and chronic disease in the UK. Um, this specific project was funded by Cancer Research UK and it just really offered a chance for a novel collaboration between Action on Smoking on Health, Obesity Health Alliance and the Alcohol Health Alliance to work collaboratively to really identify what that prevention vision for the country could be for those three products. And what were the key findings of the report? So some of the findings of the report won't come as a surprise to anyone. So we know that 13% of adults in England smoke. We know 21% roughly drink over the recommended drinking guidelines. And we know that 64% of us are living with overweight or obesity, which is just one of the many consequences of unhealthy food and drink. And I think what the report really you know, continue to reiterate was the inequality within that. So this, these are things that are affecting all of us across the country, but they're not affecting us equally. And we know people who are more disadvantaged are more likely to both smoke and drink. And so really our findings were that not only do we know this exists, we know that it's unavoidable. So we're just exposed to these products in every aspect of modern day life, thinking about where we live, where we work, school and where we learn, where we socialize. Um, it's really holding us back from building the society that could be healthier, happier, and more productive. So some of the key outputs that we had in the report were economic analysis we ran specifically to look at the impact of these products. So these industries are making a significant revenue. So £53 billion is made from people consuming over the recommended guidelines. For any, any amount of smoking is considered harmful. So that's all of their smoking revenue. And 43% of alcohol purchases are above the recommended 14 units that the government recommends in the latest guidelines. And 29% of food and drink that is purchased is above the nutritional guidelines. And the revenue from that is 53 billion pounds that the industry takes home. But that has a consequence on society. And actually we found that there's a wage penalty of unemployment and economic activity directly because of tobacco, alcohol and obesity costs to the UK economy. And that's an eye-watering £31 billion that we're losing annually. And that equates to 459,000 people out of work. So in the uh, report, there's a lot of discussion obviously about the sort of similarities of the tactics of the uh, these harmful commodity um, industries and how they lobby governments to uh, restrict uh, and prevent effective regulation. Um, could you explain some of those tactics and how they how they sort of translate across the different risk areas? Yeah, so this isn't a well-kept secret at all. So around the 1970s, when there was the legal um, challenges to the PACO industries, they released a wealth of um 
papers in the sort of legal proceeding that became um, published online. And actually, when you go through them, there's really clear tactics that are being used to influence policy to favour um, unhealthy industries, in that case, tobacco industry. But actually, the evidence is really strong that the same tactics are being used across unhealthy product industries. So thinking about alcohol and unhealthy food and drink, in addition to other industries, we don't um, address in this report specifically, but it does spread that widely. And there are some that are sort of blindingly obvious. There's the discrediting of scientific evidence and scientists. And for example, we know when Transport for London recently um, put out consultation before they put their advertising ban with the soft drinks industry levy with that consultation as well. We had a lot of response from industry stakeholders saying that the evidence isn't strong enough when the evidence was. Secondly, influencing public opinion through public relations. We know that industry representatives have a very loud voice, both in the media and other aspects, to make sure that sort of their perspective is the one that's uh, being put out to the public. Promoting alternative policy proposals, both favourable to industry. So we've seen so many calls of a voluntary tax, voluntary regulation, working in partnership, as opposed to sort of regulation, which will be more equal across all industry players and organizations. Um, and then there's the focusing on the positive impacts of the industry. So, you know, tobacco industry focusing on the tax that they bring in as opposed to the massive health harms and the cost of that to the society. Threatening legal um, challenges is one that's quite commonly heard. Um, and the sort of result of all of these activities done in collaboration with each other is that it does delay and disrupt the policymaking process. And we've seen that time and time again. So with the government's obesity strategy, a lot of the policies that should have been brought in by now, thinking about buy one, get one free offers and so on, have all been delayed. And actually explicitly within the government's press release for that was that industry needed more time. But actually, we can't afford to give more time to lose more people's health. It's really interesting. So you were talking at the beginning about how this playbook developed out of documents released during legal proceedings against the tobacco industry. Is is that correct? And is, is that sort of an irony of uh, these legal proceedings kind of led to a, a reduction in what the tobacco industry was able to do, but actually perhaps a development of the alcohol industry and the unhealthy food industries? Uh, strategies to um, delay and prevent uh, regulatory change? So I don't think it was so much that it was a change in what they were doing. I think it was just really brought to the forefront of public knowledge. So these were publicly available documents at that point, documenting the sort of tactics they'd used to sort of, you know, for example, selling cigarettes to children as sort of how do they get, you know, children hooked on and consumers for life. And more and more so building off that insight that we got. We've been able to identify similar tactics in other industries, but that's not to say that it was all already happening. And, you know, we do know things such as sort of senior leadership move between different industry organizations. So again, that's nothing new and that's all in the public domain, but it's how all of these different tactics work together to create a policy environment that's favorable to the unhealthy industry commodities, as opposed to putting the nation's health first. I think that um, one of the interesting things for me is the focus on the industry about how unfair a lot of these sort of regulations would be um, and that people don't want it. Um, and there's a really interesting aspect of the report which discusses public support for measures to tackle the harms from these uh, these three areas. Is there support across the board for such policies that you, you discuss? And if there is that, that public support, why do you think that isn't being translated into actual change in policy? 
So when thinking about the sort of public's perception of policies, there's really strong feeling that the government isn't doing enough for tobacco, alcohol and unhealthy food and drinks. But it tends to come out really strongly with tobacco that they feel the policy should be protected. So we had over 75% of adults polled with the ASHU Gov survey saying that we need to protect health policy from tobacco industry interference. But that's still very high levels of support for other products. So 70% for alcohol industry protection and finally 68% protecting food and food and drink industries protecting um food and drink policy sorry from the from the industries that convey them when you dig down into more specific policies like for example should we have a levy on a product there's still strong support across the board again it continues to be strongest for tobacco um followed by alcohol and food and drinks but generally the feeling is publicly that we need more regulation of these industries. We need to protect health policy from them. The exact mechanisms through which we do that, there tends to always be a bit of variation in the support. And coming on to the next part of your question is why is that not leading to actual policy change? So there's a few aspects to this that complicate it. Essentially, a lot of the ways that we need to enact these really strong shifts in society and changes exist outside of the Department of Health and Social Care. It needs that real cross-government support in addition to cross-party support. So it can't be sort of every election cycle, you know, this shifts or changes. It needs to be that consistent effort. And in order to do that or anything else in life, you need to have adequate funding in place. So we need to really be thinking about how do we prevent people taking up products that are going to cause harms and have an impact for the rest of their life and generations to come and actually think about the policy framework around that. So how do we prioritize prevention? How do we invest in prevention as a country to make sure that actually we are future proofing our country, both financially in terms of the economy and productivity, as well as the health of the nation? There was a really interesting um, poll done by YouGov last week, which was um, asking people what their thoughts were on the autumn statement and alcohol duty was frozen in the autumn statement. And I think this is, I found this really interesting in the sense of when alcohol duty is cut or frozen, the media is sort of inundated with um, how great this is for the alcohol industry and how great this is for hospitality and for to save pubs. There's very little in the in the media when this happens about the public health aspect of freezing and cutting duty and how it leads to an increasing consumption and subsequent harm. And this YouGov poll asked people what they supported most in most to least in um, in the Chancellor's statement and alcohol duty was the least supported measure. And I think it's just really interesting because I think politicians sort of wrongly judge that measures around tackling alcohol harm don't have support among the public. Um, because perhaps of this, this media coverage of it, which is, I'd, I'd argue, sort of quite inaccurate of of um, how people actually feel. You talked a lot there about the the emphasis on cross-government um, support and uh, a commitment across government, not just it being focused on DHSC. How could leadership at the highest levels of government be mobilised to ensure a sustained and coordinated effort across these different departments that are so important? You know, we, we were quite conscious in the report. It's not our place to be prescriptive about how this is to be done. I think there are some clear sort of guidelines and boundaries around the best ways to do that. And it is really that cross-government support, but really senior leadership. I mean, you know, ideally want the prime minister to be really, you know, charging forward with this agenda, but definitely sort of cabinet members where decision making is made. So, you know, treasury getting them involved and in 
invested into health as an investment, as a concept. Um, and that real understanding of prevention where you have this upfront cost, but actually, you know, for generations to come, you're going to be reaping the rewards by investing in that. I think coming back to your point earlier about sort of how variable the progress has been in policies was one of the sort of really um, eye-opening aspects of the report. So we did a sort of analysis across the three products. And for example, for alcohol, the latest strategy was in 2012. And thinking about um, the obesity strategy that was released in 2020 and, you know, ongoing tobacco control, including the amazing smoke-free generation commitment that the current um, government has made, there's that real disparity in even sort of thinking about strategy, let alone enacting policies to that effect. And it's bringing them together because one aspect is that political capital you're investing each time you're putting a policy forward. And I think there's definitely structural issues in the ways that policies are made that are preventing us from having this more joined up approach to prevention. But the sort of energy and investment into each policy is so significant. And actually what we argue for is if you were to do that across three, like an advertising ban that includes alcohol, tobacco and unhealthy food and drinks, it's one policy, but you're making a major shift that way. Um, and it's these major, these sort of shifts adding up that allow us to get to that point where we have a coherent prevention approach. Why do you think it is that that across the three areas there's such a difference in approach from uh, the government in terms of regulation you yeah you mentioned the new commitment by Rishi Sunak to um effectively ban uh, smoking in in a, well, however many decades it will be uh, banning um the sale of tobacco um and lifting that by a year at each time so that basically anybody who's is it anyone who's 14 years old now 14. and younger won't ever be able to legally buy tobacco mm. products um yet there's such little movement on alcohol why do you think there's that lack of commitment on one and huge commitment on the other so i think part of it is timing so as i mentioned sort of the tobacco legal challenges of the 70s like we've really been building up to get to this point and it you know it's such a fantastic position to be in but nothing's guaranteed and there's still more work to be done, definitely. We are waking up a bit more to sort of unhealthy food and drink. The obesity strategy, I think the links to COVID really brought to the forefront, actually, we have a problem here to resolve. But again, that, you know, that really that strategy was put forward. It was very comprehensive and actually it's been applied in quite a piecemeal way. That means we lose some of the impact that we could have had. So with alcohol, I think there is a social sensitivity around how to portray it. I think people feel quite targeted when we discuss alcohol policy. And a big part of this piece of work is we just really want to zone out from the individual and look at us as a nation. And when we're saying 24%, that's, you know, almost one in four adults are drinking over the recommended guidelines. This isn't someone having an extra drink on one night. This is an issue we're suffering as a population that we need to address. And I think if we shift that mindset, there'll be more um, energy into putting alcohol policy in place. Uh, but politicians are really reluctant to address it. Or it doesn't help that Parliament itself is quite an alcoholcentric environment. I mean, they've got multiple bars in Parliament. There are people voting until sort of 10, even 11pm often, and uh, we'll be popping down to the bar um, it's a it's a huge issue in Parliament and among MPs um, drinking and has been for many many decades. So that's unlikely to help this situation as well. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we all saw with Partygate the scandals, you know, across COVID decision making, what a key, what a part alcohol played within that. And again, it comes back to that leadership. So, you know, if you're not getting that clear message from the top about what is and isn't acceptable in government, it's really hard to ask individual politicians to come and take that stance. What do you hope is taken away from this uh, publication? So it was covered in uh, a few major uh, news outlets um, and the reception that was held in the House of Lords for it last week um, was really well attended. What do you hope senior MPs take away from it? Yeah, we're really glad that it had sort of such a great reception. We've had lots of great feedback saying that people found it really um, interesting. I think the main output that we really wanted to bring forward is that not just these products are causing these health harms and the implications they have on the economy and on productivity, but they're causing these harms in this context and in this environment that favours policies and regulations that are more for the interest of industry stakeholders as opposed to the nation's health. And one approach that we sort of suggest as to how to take that um, coherent policy approach is a framework where there's three key enablers that will allow us to do that. And it's that comprehensive strategy I've already mentioned, adequate funding for prevention and really treating it as an investment into our future and protecting policy from industry stakeholders, which we've also discussed. But underlying that, we recommend five key actions, and these will come as no surprise to anybody working in the field, but regulating advertising around these products, where pro regulating where products can be used and the environments they can be used, similar to sort of smoke-free areas, using fiscal measures and levers, providing treatment services and informing the public about the risk. So just to reiterate, it's those really three enablers of funding prevention, protecting health policy and a comprehensive strategy that could be underlined by these actions that allow us to achieve that coherent policy approach. And now to Susan Taylor, who discussed alcohol-related cancer cases in the northeast of England and Balance Northeast's new campaign. So we're seeing in the northeast around 2,000 cases of cancer each year related to alcohol um, and around 500 deaths each year. Again, we know that the region suffers from some of the worst problems when it comes to alcohol-related issues, and these numbers are clearly unacceptable. And how does alcohol actually cause cancer? So it's quite a complex process. Essentially, when you drink alcohol, it's converted into a toxic chemical called acetaldehyde. And actually that starts to absorb into your bloodstream, which can cause mutations in cells, which then lead to cancer. So we know there is increasing evidence that even from the first drink, alcohol increases your risk of cancer. Um, it's a difficult thing to communicate, I think, at times. You know, it's information that perhaps people don't want to hear, but uh, we believe it is hugely important to get that information across. And awareness rates are actually very low of the links between alcohol and cancer. So in the northeast, around a third of the population understand that link. So from our perspective, it's really important to have campaigns that communicate those messages. Definitely. So you're running a campaign at the moment, which and you run one each year, which, which is sort of evolves each year. Mm. Um, and there's some really interesting aspects of your new campaign. Could you explain a little bit about what your campaign looks like and what it uh, hopes to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, this year we've gone for a really hard-hitting um, genre. We, we try and learn always from the latest evidence, particularly around the tobacco agenda. 
Um, so we have gone for, for quite hard-hitting creative this time round. It features a, a couple drinking a normal home environment. Um, the man takes a sip of alcohol and then actually you see the internal process by which a, a cancer is formed. Um, so it is quite unique and groundbreaking in that sense. I don't think we've ever seen a campaign in the UK that features that kind of um, graphic imagery and then it finishes on a shot um, in a hospital scene of people waiting for news essentially of a, a kind of test for cancer so it is really trying to transmit that information that alcohol is a direct causal factor in cancer um, and give people the information that they need to have to make those informed decisions about their drinking. I think some people might say it's quite scaremongering do you think there's any aspect of that which would, would hold up or do you think that it's just simply needs to be told? I think for me, it is information that people need to be told. You know, it's something when we're going through creative processes that we are very conscious of. You know, we're aware it's a, a hugely sensitive subject and that our intention is never to cause offence. But at the same time, we believe that people do have the right to know this information. It's something that, particularly in the northeast and beyond, um, very people do uh, have that information about alcohol being a causal factor in cancer. So for us, it is absolutely essential to get that information across in the most accurate way possible. Um, we know that hard-hitting campaigns do tend to be quite impactful. We've had that learning from uh, the tobacco agenda. So I think that there are good grounds for running the campaign in this way. Um, I understand that for some people it might be a very sensitive issue, but hopefully having that information on balance, I think, is, is more important than the offence potentially that we might cause. So the website that you signpost people to is called reducemyrisk.tv. Um, I checked it out. It's really lovely. There's some really interesting information on there. One of the great uh, assets that you've got on there is a, a Vox Pop asking people what they think the uh, the drinking guidelines are, the low-risk drinking guidelines, and it really sort of highlights people's lack of knowledge. So it's not just the website isn't just about alcohol and cancer and um, information about that. Um, so it's really worth people visiting. What would you... I hope that the main learning is for people um, watching the campaign or, or going onto the website even. I think for me, what I would want people to take out of the campaign is to understand that alcohol is a harmful substance and it does need to be treated with respect. I think, you know, people do tend to associate alcohol with very positive things. And, you know, I, I drink myself and, you know, certainly it can be a nice feature of life on some occasions. But at the same time, alcohol is a harmful substance. We know that like tobacco, it causes cancer. It's a group one carcinogen. And having that information, I think, is hugely important for people to make informed choices about their drinking. So I think I'd encourage people to go on to the Reduce My Risk website. As you say, there's some great content on there. And I think, you know, having people with lived experience talking about their own um, journeys in terms of cutting down their consumption, living healthy lifestyles, I think anything that you can do to reduce your risk um, particularly of diseases like cancer is really beneficial. So this is very much sort of focused at what people can do and what people can learn um, but what would you hope that the government would do in terms of potentially sort of improving people's understanding of the risk of alcohol uh, causing cancer or the sort of consequences of it? Well I think there's a huge amount that the government can do and should be doing. We know that alcohol is one of the most kind of harmful substances I think within society. You look at the middle age groups so from 15 to 49 I think it is the biggest single risk factor um, in I suppose ill health and dying. So actually for me I think the government has a real duty to, to take action when it does come to alcohol. We know that there's a huge evidence base um, particularly around trying to reduce the affordability, the availability um, and the promotion of alcohol. So I think if the government were to legislate around that actually we could see huge strides in terms of prevention. Um, you know for us mass media campaigns we've seen the impact that that can have in the northeast 
we know already that our rates of awareness are much higher than the rest of the country when it comes to that understanding of the links between alcohol and cancer. We're at around the third compared to, I think, 10% in the rest of the country. So I think the government also has a role around national mass media campaigns. Um, but I think, you know, essentially anything that is evidence-based at that national level needs to be introduced as soon as possible. We're seeing people, particularly in our region, dying every day as a result of alcohol. And actually it's not good enough that the government's been really inactive in this respect. It's also important to um, highlight that the alcohol labelling is um, definitely a, a means by which people can learn about the, the risks of um, of alcohol. Absolutely, and I, I think you know it, it's another side of the same coin when it comes to that awareness raising that we're trying to do through the alcohol and cancer campaigns. You know, having accurate health labelling, which includes a, a cancer awareness message, which includes you know accurate unit information and uh, perhaps even a, a general health warning. I think is absolutely fundamental again to giving people the tools that they need to make informed decisions about their drinking. Um, you know, it's something that the government hasn't shown a huge amount of willingness to to do nationally, but I think keeping the pressure on them. Uh, and encouraging them to take that evidence-based action that we know does have the impact is hugely important. That is all for this month. Thank you for listening and we hope you can join us in next month's podcast.